Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And if you don't have your Bible with you, I'd like to ask you why not. <laughs> uh, we're in church. Uh, I, I'm going to talk to you, like Brady said today, a little bit about the Reformation. And uh, in a minute, we're going to uh, read this verse, and then we'll talk a little bit later about the impact that, that it, this, these verses had. But today is October 29th, and today is October 31st. Uh, something really, really big is coming up, and I'm not talking about Halloween. Um, it's the, it is on Halloween Day, but it's the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation. So that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. But let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is a power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith to faith. Or the NIV says it's by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now if you want to, you can hold your place there. We'll come back to that in a little bit. <clears throat> but I want to start off with talking about the life of a a German guy named Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. Uh, he was born in Germany in 1487, I think. He, he grew up in a small German town. His father was a miner, but his father wanted something better for his son, so he saved money, and uh, he was a good businessman. He had some money. And he wanted to send his son to law school. So he sent his son, Martin, to law school. And Martin went. Uh, he graduated from college, and he had just started law school. And then in 1505, he was out walking around the German countryside, and he got caught in a thunderstorm, a big thunderstorm, like we have around here. He's walking out in the countryside by himself, and lightning struck right next to him and knocked him down. And he took that as a sign from God, and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. And remember, his father's goal for him, and his father's whole plan was for him to go to law school. Within two weeks, he had quit law school and joined the monastery and become a monk. That was in 1505. Now, we're looking at the book of Romans, so it's interesting to think about the church in Rome. Uh, the church in Rome, of course, in the Bible, the New Testament church in Rome, was, uh, was very orthodox, very biblical. But over the years, uh, the church began to get away from biblical teaching. In fact, Martin Luther, before he uh, went in the monastery, had never even seen a Bible. Uh, the church services were in Latin, which people didn't speak. All the education was in Latin. Uh, the seminary classes were in Latin. The writing was done in Latin, the religious writing. So it wasn't really accessible to the common people. But what had happened was over the centuries, from New Testament times to the 1500s, the church had started teaching that faith wasn't enough for salvation. Uh, you had to have faith plus works. So there were works 
that you had to do to be saved. If you wanted to make it to heaven, you had to do some works. You had to keep the sacraments. Uh, you had to do penance. You had to do other things. And so that's Martin Luther's background. When he got into the monastery, he knew that um, God was holy. He understood God's holiness. Part of the routine for the monks in the monastery was they had to, they had to um, do confession every day. Well, he was a monk living in a monastery, so you can imagine he was not living a really wild life or anything, right? Uh, but he would confess, he would go to confession for hours every day, sometimes four or five hours every day he would be in confession. And at one point, his confessor told him, uh, the whole time you've been here, I've never even heard you confess one thing slightly interesting. But he felt the guilt. He felt guilty. He knew he was guilty before God. He knew God was a holy God. He understood Habakkuk 1.13 that says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. He understood and he took to heart verses like Nahum 1, uh, chapter 1, that says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? He took these verses to heart. Verses like Psalm 711. God is a righteous judge who is angry with the wicked every day. And Luther was just overwrought with guilt and fear of God. And as, as time went on, and he would do these long confessions every day, uh, someone told him one time, you, you worry too much. Don't you love God? And Luther said, love God. I hate God. Because he saw God only as a judge, only as a judge, a completely righteous, holy, angry judge who had been offended. Luther knew that he broke the law. He knew that he had broken God's law repeatedly over and over, and nothing he did could make up for that. And he saw God only as a, an angry judge, and he knew he could never measure up. So fast forward 10 years from the time he went in the seminary, into the monastery. He'd gone to school, uh, he'd gotten his master's degree, his doctorate degree, and now he went to a town in Germany called Wittenberg to teach in the university there, and he was teaching Bible and theology. He taught through the book of Psalms. I don't know if he taught every Psalm or not, but he taught the Psalms, and then he was preparing to teach on the book of Romans. And when he got to Romans, he came to this passage we just read. Romans 1, 16 and 17. And it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in it, that is in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Luther was perplexed by this because the righteousness of God was the thing he feared the most. Uh, he was afraid of God's righteousness because he knew he was unrighteous. He didn't understand how gospel, of course, means good news. How can it be good news that God's righteousness is revealed? He couldn't understand it, but he continued to study, and he said he meditated on it day and night. 
he said that he understood in this verse where it says the righteousness of God to be the righteousness, the formal or active righteousness with which God is righteous and punishes the sinner. So the, the righteousness that God has and the, by which he punishes the sinner. But he said after he meditated on it day and night, he began to understand that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is the righteousness by which a merciful God justifies us by faith. It's the righteousness that God bestows freely on all who believe. That's what it says in verse 17. Uh, the, The righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what Martin Luther understood was he finally came to understand after all these years of being terrified of God and hating God. He understood that God is holy. That part was true. And we're unholy. That part is true. And that should cause us fear. But the Bible says the the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the fear of God will lead you to repentance. And that's where he came to. He realized that When we trust in Christ by faith, faith alone, not faith plus works, no works we do, no effort we make can have any merit with God to bring us salvation, to earn salvation. You cannot earn your way to heaven. But when you come to God by faith, you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God declares you righteous. It's a judicial declaration. God the judge says you are now righteous by your faith in Christ. And it's called imputed righteousness. Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. That's a a legal term or an accounting term that means his righteousness is put in our account. Our sin is put in his account. That's why Christ died on the cross for our sin. He became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Once he understood this, he said, uh, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And then he began to see it everywhere in the Bible. Look at Romans chapter three. He was studying Romans. Romans three, chapter 20, I mean, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's the purpose of the law, to make us understand that we're sinners. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or propitiation, which is an old word, but I like it better. It means a satisfaction. It satisfied God's wrath. That's what a propitiation does. It satisfies his wrath. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 
He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So again, we see it's not by works, it's by faith. Romans chapter 4, he goes on to talk about Abraham. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Again, it's like an accounting term. It was credited to him. It was put to his account. God declared Abraham righteous. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And again, Luther began to see this everywhere in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by grace he saved us. It's a gift. Salvation is by faith alone. So Luther discovered this wonderful truth. Salvation is by faith alone. And Luther said that this is the article that the church stands or falls upon, the salvation by faith alone. Now, remember I told you that in that day, all the religious teaching and services and everything were in Latin. So there's a Latin phrase for this faith alone. It's sola fide. Sola means alone. Fide means faith. Uh, if you're familiar with the marine motto, semper fidelis, means always faithful. So, um, sola fide became the cry of the reformers, of the Reformation. Uh, we're saved by faith alone, not faith plus works, not faith plus anything, faith alone. So, Luther discovered this wonderful truth, sola fide. There were... And if you're interested in this, you can just Google five solas. There's a, a massive amount of information on it. Five solas of the Reformation. So the, these are all Latin phrases, and I'll tell you because uh, it's kind of like a geeky thing that I like. Uh, sola fide means faith alone. Sola scriptura, which we're going to talk about next, means the, the Bible alone, the scripture alone. Um, solus Christus means Christ alone, sola gratia, faith alone, and soli deo gloria means to the glory of God alone. So the, the reformers believed that the Bible was the only authority. It's the final authority. It's the authority we go by. So sola scriptura, and when Martin Luther studied the Bible, he discovered sola fide, we're saved by faith, we're saved by grace. So we believe in scripture alone, and we believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So when Martin Luther understood the idea of being saved by faith alone, uh, he, he began to teach it and tell everyone that he knew about it, and he started writing books and tracts and pamphlets 
And <clears throat> uh, at this time, in the, in the early 1500s, that was 15, about 1515 when Luther discovered this truth, when he was preparing to teach Romans. And about this same time, uh, the church, the Catholic Church wanted to build, rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, but they were having trouble raising money, so one thing they did to raise money was they sold indulgences. Now, an adult, indulgence is uh, a, like a decree from the Pope or from the church that says you don't have to pay the penalty for some of your temporal sins in purgatory. So what you could do, uh, th th there was a guy named Johann Tetzel, and he was going throughout Germany. He was a Dominican friar, and he, was, he would come into town. He had a huge entourage, and they would set up a stage, and they ha have a big theatrical uh, experience, and people would come to hear him, and he was a great orator, and he would talk about, uh, you can feel the fires of hell licking at your loved one's face or whatever. And he would get the people worked up, and then he would tell them, this was his phrase, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So what happened was he'd get the people all emotional, and then, you know, uh, Grandpa, I'm afraid Grandpa's still in purgatory. He's been dead for 50 years, but I think he's still there. Uh, come and buy an indulgence. They'll put the amount of money. They had the paper printed up. They would write the amount of money, the person's name that you bought it for, and boom, they're out of purgatory. So Luther, uh, Luther was obviously uh, not happy with this. He was in Germany. This was this Tetzel guy, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs, was in Germany doing this. So Martin Luther, in 1517, on October 31st, wrote a list of 95 theses. Theses is plural for the word thesis. And a thesis is a statement that you, you just make the statement and then you're going to discuss it or write about it. You're going to try to explain it. So he wrote a list of 95 statements that he wanted to debate about. And he went to the castle church there in Wittenberg and he nailed them to the door. Now, when we hear that, and if you see it in movies or whatever, it's like the dramatic music is playing and he's up there pounding it on the door. And it seems like a huge act of defiance or maybe even property damage or something, I don't know. But at the time, the, the church door was like the bulletin board. So he wrote these 95 theses in Latin. He took them up there and put them on the bulletin board, basically. And what he wanted was he was inviting the other scholars to come and have a debate with him, a discussion about the abuses of indulgences. Well, that's not what happened at all. No one showed up for his discussion time except him. And some of his students who knew Latin and German took the 95 theses, translated them into German, and... Uh, they had this really cool brand new invention called the printing press. So they printed them and they distributed them, hundreds of copies throughout Germany. And it, it said that within a few weeks that the 95 Theses had shown up in every town in Germany. And eventually they made it to Rome to the Pope too, who obviously was not happy with Martin Luther. So <clears throat> what happened was Martin Luther was called 
to come to a church council and give account for his teaching. Now, I, I don't know if he was naive or what, but he thought he would have a chance to discuss his views and, um, you know, uh, talk about why he believed it and present arguments from Scripture. But what happened was when he got there, they gave him this. He, he was called twice, and at both of them, it was basically, uh, you, this is false teaching, you have to recant. And he said, well, I got this from the Bible. And they said, well, this pope and this pope and this pope said indulgences are fine, and faith plus works is what save you. And this church council and this church council say it's fine. So you're wrong. You're going against the popes and the church council. You're wrong. So then Martin Luther came up with, that's not a really good way to say it. He didn't come up with it then. But what he, uh, his, what he leaned on was the principle of sola scriptura, or scripture alone. Scripture is the final authority. Not the church, not the pope, not the church councils. Scripture alone. Bible is the final, ultimate authority for everything. Um, now, the Bible doesn't talk about everything, right? There's no, like, if you want to know... Um, how to change your oil in your car. You're not going to find the answers for that in the Bible. But the Bible does, anything it speaks on, it's the final authority on. It's the only infallible, inerrant source of spiritual truth. It's the only authority that can bind our conscience. We have other authorities, right? The, the government is our authority. We're supposed to be under their authority. But we, we judge their authority based on what the Bible says. And if they t command us to do something or forbid us to do something that the Bible tells us to do, then our authority is the Bible, God's word. Amen. And that's what we follow ultimately. And the Bible is God's breath. God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for rebuking correcting, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that God's people can be complete. The scripture is sufficient. It's all we need. Now, I'm not saying we don't need human teachers. We don't need other books. But everything we need for faith and practice and life is found in the Bible. So that the man of God can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And because the Bible is God breathe it's infallible it will never fail Isaiah 55 11 says my word will not return to me void but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent uh, it's inerrant the Bible is inerrant it has no errors in it the original scriptures as they were written were completely inerrant if there are any mistakes in your Bible it's because of people who printed it or translated it later. The Bible is inerrant. It's trustworthy. The translations we have today are trustworthy. We have so many ancient, we have over 5,500 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament before the printing press. So we can compare all those and we know uh, what we have today is accurate. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword 
piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intention of the hearts. The Bible is living. It's alive. It will work in your life. It will make a change in your life. It's powerful. It's the power of God. It's in the scriptures. And then he says it's like a two-edged sword, and it cuts deep, and it cuts both ways. There's no dull edge to the scriptures. They cut both ways. They can build up or tear down. Uh, They can harden your heart, or they can soften your heart. The scriptures can lead you to eternal salvation or eternal condemnation. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Uh, the scriptures have the power to convert. First Peter 1.23 says that you're born again through the living and abiding word of God. The scriptures give us faith. Romans 10.17, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Does anybody here wish you had more faith? I do. Maybe we need to get more of the word of God in our life. That's where faith comes from. Um, the scriptures give us power to live a holy life. John 17, 17, Jesus, the night before he died, in the upper room was talking to his disciples. Actually, he was praying when he said this to the Father, but his disciples were there. And he said to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That's how God sanctifies us. That's how he sets us apart. That's how he makes us holy, through his word. Um, Everything, let me just read this to you. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations or the spirit or the traditions of men. So the Bible, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is powerful. The Bible is what we need. Scripture alone is the principle. It's the final authority. So, again, now, uh, Luther had developed these two from the scripture, he didn't come up with this on his own, but the idea of sola fide, faith alone, and sola scriptura, scripture alone. And he had written many books and pamphlets, like I already said. In 1521, he was called in by the church again to the Diet of Worms. And I know that sounds like maybe some kind of fad, high-protein diet, but it has nothing to do with food. A diet is like a, a council, an imperial council, a hearing before the prince of the, of the land. And Worms, W-O-R-M-S, it's a city in Germany, and it's really pronounced Worms, so the Diet of Worms, but the Diet of Worms sounds better. He was called in. He'd already been declared a heretic by the church, but he was called in again, and they were going to ask him to recant. The prince of Saxony uh, gave him free passage so that no one could kill him on his way there. He came, it, he came by covered wagon, a little two-wheeled covered horse-drawn wagon, and it took him uh, weeks to get there from Wittenberg to Worms. And he, he told people, he said, he even wrote that he 
he believed he was going to his death. When he got there, again, I think he thought he was going to have a chance to explain his thinking and his rationale and defend his arguments. But when he got there, it was a hall. There was a, a table there with all his books piled up on it and all his writings. And they said, are these your writings? And he said, yes. And they said, do you recant? Will you take it back? Will you recant? And he kind of mumbled something inaudibly. And they said, you know, speak up. We can't hear you. And he, he had been looking, he had been planning to this, coming to this day for weeks. And he said, may I have time to consider? Um, so they said, we'll give you 24 hours. That night he went to a room alone and he prayed all night. <clears throat> and he asked God to strengthen him and help him. And the, he wrote, the prayer is written, he wrote it. You can read it. It ends with, oh God, send help. So the next day he went back into the tribunal and they asked him, are these your works? And he said, yes. And they said, will you recant? And Martin Luther said, unless I'm convinced by scripture and by plain reason, not by popes and councils who so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither safe nor right. I cannot, I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Then the hall, the hall was crowded and it broke out. It erupted. The crowd erupted. Some people were uh, cheering for him to be lynched. Some people were cheering for him because they were on his side and the, it was like chaos. So Martin walked out the door and as he headed home, uh, his, some of his friends had arranged to have him kidnapped. So they kidnapped him. Uh, so apparently people wouldn't be looking for him. They took him to a castle out in the countryside and hid him there. And for the next year, he was in hiding, and he translated the New Testament into German, which was a crime in itself. You weren't supposed to have the scriptures in the common language. So for the first time, the German people had the New Testament in their own language, and they could read it for themselves. And, you know, in our Sunday school room in the back there, there's a, a sign that says, uh, a, person who can't, a person who will not read has no advantage over a person who cannot read. So in their day, they couldn't read the Bible. They didn't have it in their language. But if we will not read the Bible, uh, what advantage do we have over them? Uh, eventually, he translated the whole Bible, the whole Bible into uh, German and uh, he went on to uh, live a long life, and he was uh, somewhat protected there in Germany, so he was never uh, killed by the Catholic Church. But that's the story of how one seemingly insignificant German monk followed the Word of God, came to the belief of Scripture alone, and then through the Scripture, 
discovered that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he pounded, uh, he, he posted some things on a wall, and that's believed to be the start of the, the Reformation. And that one seemingly insignificant German monk, just by believing God's word and following it, completely changed the course of history. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is the final authority and everything that we need for faith and life is in there and that we have the, the privilege to read it and follow it. And that we can read it every day if we want. We can study it, memorize it. We have it available to us. Thank you for that, Lord. And thank you for Martin Luther and, and many, many other people like him who had the courage to stand up and do what was right, even though uh, it cost them so much. I pray that you would help us to follow that example and to do what's right, even when it's not easy. And that if there's anyone here today, Lord, who has never been saved by faith alone, they've never understood that, they believe that they could work their way to heaven, they're trying to be good enough to get there, I pray that you'd convict them and show them salvation is by faith alone, and through faith we can have the righteousness of Christ, and that you would give them the gift of faith and repentance today. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, like Brady said earlier, we are going to um, partake in the Lord's Supper to get together today. So if, the, if you're serving, would you please come forward now? Um, again, let me reiterate, like Martin Luther said, there's no saving merit in, in the Lord's Supper. It's a memorial. We do it to remember Jesus and, uh, and honor him and remember his death till he comes again. So if you're here today and you've been saved by faith, we uh, invite you to come and participate with us. You don't have to be a member of the church or anything. Uh, when we do this, I'll have you all stand and we'll dismiss you by rows. If you would go across this way, and come around in a circle. It makes things more orderly. And then when you take your bread and your cup of juice, please hold those to the end, and then we'll all partake together. So would you stand now?